This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larsen. And this week, I'm going to attempt the impossible. I'm going to try to come up with a nuanced take on a Nicolas Cage movie. Impossible or just what you might expect from Kevin McLenathan wearing Sarah Welch-Larsen's face? Oh, no. Oh, shoot. (laughs) Oh, what have we done? (laughs) Also, this is Sarah Welch Larson wearing Kevin McClenthan's face. We don't know what's going on. It's going to be a crazy episode. We've got an all Nicolas Cage episode for you this week. First up, we're going to be talking about his triumphant return and metafictional adventures in The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And this is Kevin McClenthan wearing Sarah Welch Larson's face, here to also tell you that we will be covering the John Woo movie Face Off. And hopefully maybe we'll be able to switch our faces back to, I don't know, this is really weird. We probably should have thought this through before pulling the trigger on the whole face switching thing. Yeah. Might have been a little bit premature. Listeners, you be the judges. It's going to be a wild ride on episode 331 of Seeing and Believing. All right. All right. I get it. You're making this up? What is this, like a, a little um, Stanislavski improv thing? Well, you can stop. Stanislavski, is he part of the resistance? Stop! I am your guest! Gabriella ripped the bedspread off me this morning. Now you're sending me on like a wild goose chase! I'm sorry, but you can't quit acting. You can't! That's none of your business. Whether you like it or not, you have a gift. And that gift brings light and joy to an increasingly dark and broken world. And to turn your back on that gift is to turn your back on the in- entire human race. Human race? I'm afraid so. Welcome to episode 331 of Seeing and Believing, an episode that I am so excited about, Sarah. You, I mean, I've told you a lot many times over the last couple of weeks. Ever since we locked in this episode, is going to be the Nicolas Cage episode. Mm-hmm. I've told you that I'm all in the bag for Cage. I I really am looking forward to talking about these two movies. Uh, I I hope hopefully it lives up to my expectations. I think it might. There might be some fireworks. Uh, so hopefully hopefully it goes well. <laughs> as as befitting an episode that features a review of the action opus Face Off, starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. Uh, that's coming up in the Watchlist segment. That was my recommendation for you. I was shocked shocked that you had not had a chance to see it yet so Mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about that in a little bit and i i literally can't wait 
Kevin's giddy as he's talking about this. Yeah. I know podcasting is an aural medium and not a visual medium, but if you could see Kevin, like he's kind of giddy about this. And, and because it's an audio medium, I'm not actually going to be rubbing my hands because the microphone would pick that up. <laughs> but I would be rubbing my hands with glee if if that were not an issue because that is how giddy I am. But we'll we'll put that on hold for now. We've got another Nicolas Cage movie to get to first, and this one kind of has some fireworks of its own to share. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that takes a little bit of a meta angle on Nicolas Cage. It's not just Nicolas Cage giving a performance. It's Nicolas Cage giving a performance as Nicolas Cage. In this new action comedy called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, Nicolas Cage stars as himself. Creatively unfulfilled and facing financial ruin, the fictionalized, maybe, version of Cage must accept a $1 million offer to attend the birthday party of a possibly dangerous superfan played by Pedro Pascal. Things take a wildly unexpected turn when Cage is recruited by a CIA operative played by Tiffany Haddish and forced to live up to his own legend, channeling his most iconic and beloved on-screen characters in order to save himself and his loved ones from an international cartel of criminals. With a career built for this very moment, the seminal award-winning actor must take on the role of a lifetime Nicholas Cage. <laughs> so that's the official synopsis. It's, you know, setting the bar pretty high there. Um and I mean this is a movie that practically begs for the the audiences and the critics even to kind of put themselves in the position of super fans, specifically Cage super fans. Mm-hmm. So maybe if we're going to come at it from something like that angle, I think we first have to kind of take the temperature of the room here, Sarah. I'm really curious to know what your thoughts are on Cage as an actor, Cage as not just an actor, but sort of this cultural phenomenon, a meme, maybe, if you will. Mm-hmm. And what do you think the unbearable weight of massive talent has to say about those two facets of Cage's persona? So Cage as an actor... Um... I feel like I came around on him like just last year with Pig, um, which was both of our favorite movies of last year um, until a hero supplanted it for you at the very least. It's a good movie. Yeah, it is a good movie. Um, I like Nicolas Cage, but I also came of age on the internet during a period of time where he was just kind of the butt of just about every joke like you know the youtube compilations of just every nicholas cage freaking out I, f- I feel like those were every other video that was ever uploaded onto youtube right after it was created as a platform and so i kind of at the time just sort of went along with it and didn't really question it and i just thought this guy is nuts and he makes weird movies and is very over the top and like didn't really think of him as anything more than a punchline Um, I definitely didn't respect his work for a really long time. And I think that that's fair in some cases because he has made some not very good movies. But I do, at least at this point, um, I think I respect his willingness to commit to the bit a little bit more than I think most people would be willing to do. Um, So I'm kind of of two minds about this movie because he's definitely committing to the bit. Whether or not the bit is even worth I don't know, committing to? I'm not entirely sure. So I'm, I'm curious to know what your read is on it. So I was looking forward to this movie a lot because I think Cage is, I mean, he's such a singular screen presence, first of all. I mean, when you see Nicolas Cage on screen, he's he's just got that something that even when he's giving 
a bad performance in a bad movie, you kind of just like to look at him just to see what he's going to do next. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a uh, one of the hallmarks of a great actor in the sense that you just, you want, you, he he's magnetic in a way. He's got that magnetic yeah. uh, presence and that has contributed to the the memory i guess around him the the fact that he's known for you know the cage rage yeah. you know, all whatever you think of when you think of nicolas cage it's kind of bound up a little bit in that persona that he's intentionally or not crafted for himself over the year with his role choices and the ways that he approaches his craft so i was really looking forward to seeing this movie kind of play with that a little bit like what you know, what is the relationship between the the real person, the real Nicolas Cage, and the self that he plays to the public, and the self that he plays in through his characters on screen? Like, what? Where are the boundaries between each of those? Are there even any boundaries? Uh, is it even possible to really know the real Nicolas Cage? You know, I just I got like David Foster Wallace on the brain thinking about that angle of things. So I I was really thinking there are a lot of directions that this movie could take it. And what I think is disappointing about this movie is that it kind of just, it feels like another meme in a lot of ways. Mm. It feels like it, it, it takes for granted that we all have seen that YouTube video of Nicolas Cage losing his mind, which is a super cut of, of him being very big on screen and sort of taking for granted that that's kind of what we all uh, like about Nicolas Cage. That's kind of what makes him great in a lot of ways. And that it wants to lean into that side of him. Like it wants to make a movie kind of that plays with that a little bit more. And, but it just kind of wants to play and doesn't really want to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does feel very much like kind of a surface level read, maybe. Um, and not even just like of the memes, but of the Twitter jokes about him. Like there's a recurring joke about um, Paddington 2 that pops up in this that feels very much of a kind of a lot of the conversations that I think I see around film Twitter, where it's just we're going to make a lighthearted joke and then we're just going to move on and we're not going to examine why we made that joke in the first place or what even is necessarily funny about it. So yeah, I, th- I think I'm in the same page as you there. Um, I think it also hurt me in particular that I am not like a huge Cage scholar or anything. So I, I knew that there were a lot of references to other Nicolas Cage movies in this movie. Um, I picked up on a few of them because they have been memed to death. So I'm I'm aware of the Wicker Man (laughs) and I am aware of the Not the Bees line. And I was aware of like quite a few other bits and pieces in there. Like there was a prop from Mandy that I think I'd seen like somewhere else on the internet at some point. Um, But some of the plot structure, I think, felt like it was riffing on something that I wasn't fully aware of. So I didn't really have that frame of reference for what was going on in this movie in quite the same way. So maybe that level of depth is partly on me because I'm not as familiar with the source material. I so, No, I well, here's the thing is that I think that's one of the film's disappointments is it feels a little bit like like Ready Player One. I don't know if you've, oh. if you've seen the movie, read the book or both. I hate them both. Um, yes, think, I, I agree with you on this. I think the, the movie's fine. The book is terrible. Um, but I think the, the the reason, especially that I think the book is so bad, is that it kind of just is content to 
evoke the the reference, you know, just say like, hey, remember this thing? Well, I just named the thing. Isn't it great that we both like the same thing? Okay, moving on to the next reference. And it doesn't really feel the need to explore, well, why do we like that thing? Or what makes that thing special? Or what does that thing even mean? Like, what is the meaning underlying this? It's kind of just content to make culture a checklist where we kind of, you know, all recognize certain things and the spark of recognition is enough. And I feel like that kind of happens in this movie where, oh, okay, there's a clip from Con Air that opens the movie. There's there's a couple of, of shots uh, that uh, make reference to Face Off. You know, of course, there's the, the wax figure of Nicolas Cage as Caster Troy from Face Off. And it's all kind of, yeah, it's fun to be reminded that those things exist and that they're kind of, and that they're fun cultural objects. But just kind of referencing them by themselves isn't, like that doesn't say anything. That's just referencing something else. And I was kind of, I kept waiting for the movie to do something with those references. And I didn't really see it doing a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. It kind of felt like it was more just trying to throw different plot beats sort of at the wall to see what what would stick or like throw different genre explorations at the wall to see what would stick. That piece did work for me though. Like the way that the movie would suddenly become self-aware and then switch genre a little bit to a drama and then to um, a high-speed chase and then to very, very briefly, I think there was even a little bit of horror thrown in there. So the tonal shifts I was fine with that still didn't feel like it was saying anything new but it was kind of fun to watch Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage sort of play in that space a little bit I I mean you know here Pedro Pascal is interesting because in in one sense it's kind of it might be a bad sign that in a movie that's sort of about Nicolas Cage the icon he kind of gets upstaged by Pedro Pascal a little bit he's so much fun in this movie Mm -hmm. and I think he's probably the best part of the movie which I mean is, is both good and a bad thing. You love watching Pedro Pascal. He's a ray, of, like you said, he was a ray of gosh dang sunshine or something yes, in your Twitter yeah. review uh, or your Letterboxd review. But also, you know, it, it almost feels like, but I, this movie is about Cage? So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I have two minds about that too. I, I feel like, I don't know. Maybe it's the Nicolas Cage of it all. Um, and there was actually a piece of trivia that was going around fairly recently that there were other actors that were considered for the role of Nicolas Cage. Like apparently, hear me out, Daniel Day-Lewis or Christian Bale were considered for the role of Nicolas Cage. I don't know that you can make this movie without Nicolas Cage. No, you Cage. need that. You need Nicolas Cage. And I feel I, I had not heard that trivia. And I feel like that makes me respect the movie less because it feels like it, it was more just they were looking for somebody memeable to plug into a role rather than seriously considering what makes Nicolas Cage such a unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I completely agree with you. Like both of those previously mentioned actors like have a lot of presence and gravitas and like star power for lack of a better term. But I also don't think that this would work without Nicolas Cage himself in that role either. And at the same time, there's kind of an emptiness to the middle of it. Maybe it's because the plot that this is built around, the stakes are basically twofold. It's Nicolas Cage's ego and it's Nicolas Cage's standing as a family man almost. Like there's a little bit of stuff about his career and whether or not he's going to return, but I don't think that's ever actually a question in the movie. Like you start the movie, you automatically know he's going to be coming back because this movie is also sort of on a meta level, his comeback in quote-unquote real life as well so that kind of leaves you with the other plot driving pieces that don't really 
seem to add up to much either. Like there's a daughter who's semi-estranged because he can't stop talking about himself. And then there's also his own ego, which kind of needs to be built up by Pedro Pascal. And none of that really seems to add up to anything conclusive or like even coherent. You know, it's, there's a way that that could have been interesting. Because I think that, uh, I wrote in my notes for, uh, while, while we were watching this, that uh, I, I just have the line mawkish dot, dot, dot on purpose, question mark. <laughs> because the, the parts about, you know, Nicolas Cage's family problems are very, very cliche almost. Like, you know, the, the kind of self-centered father who doesn't really have time for his family and is always thinking about himself. I mean, if this were an 80s movie, Nicolas Cage would be walking around with a cell phone and he'd always be on business calls instead of, you know, going to his daughter's you know, recital or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and th- it, this is basically a 2020s version of that. And in a way, it might have been interesting to see if the movie would take that kind of widely acknowledged cliche and, and see use that as a vehicle for sort of exploring how maybe that kind of comforting formula is a way for Cage to escape in Mm. in a way. Like he kind of builds a Hollywood movie around himself. So even his own life kind of takes on the qualities of a threadbare, cliched Hollywood movie. And that's kind of how he goes through his days. And that's kind of there, but I, I don't know if that's just me kind of reading charitably into it and it's it's unclear to me how much of this movie intends to be read as a cliche and how much of it is just enacting cliches Mm, mm, mm -hmm. yeah counterpoint though like do you think we need more like i don't know light fair movies like this because it was also kind of refreshing to like walk in sit down for an hour 45 minutes later like stand up and say well that certainly was a movie and i laughed a couple of times <laughs> <laughs> i mean again like it it's not a bad movie and i do think that it is it's fun it is so much fun to watch Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal forge a bromance for the ages. Oh, yes. Especially, you know, because you and I were movie lovers, it's especially fun to watch them do that over movies. Like, they both love the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and, <laughs> yeah. and that's sort of the 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 thing that forges their bond in fire, you know? Like, they're it's unbreakable from then on. And that's, that's amusing as far as it goes, but I, I feel like for it to be such a to take such a nakedly meta approach to the story it feels like it's it it wants to be taken more seriously than just as a lark mm. it feel i mean this is nicolas cage the guy who played a um a dual role in adaptation which is another super meta story about the act of writing the movie adaptation, hmm. you know? Another movie I haven't seen, actually. Oh, man. That's, yeah. Well, th- that might be a future watchlist segment. But, you know, th- that's that's kind of an example. Of, it feels like this movie is almost trying to be that. It's Nicolas Cage. He does play a dual role in this. He plays himself, obviously. And then there's this this alter ego version of himself that I think is is... Uh, a reference to Vampire's Kiss or maybe Wild at Heart? I think Wild at Heart specifically because he's wearing a t-shirt that says Wild at Heart underneath the leather jacket. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't I didn't catch the t-shirt text. But, you know, and, and this this alter ego is um, obviously, you know, CGI'd to be the younger version of Cage. And he's definitely 
mugging for the camera and doing all kind of all of the sorts of things we ex expect from those viral videos of Nicolas Cage losing his mind on screen. You know, he he has that trailer moment where he just draws out his own name mm -hmm. for about 20 seconds, just like just yelling at the top of his lungs. So it does, it feels like this movie is kind of trying to say something about the quality of stardom and specifically the quality of Nicolas Cage's stardom. But I, heck if I know what, what exactly it's saying about those things. Yeah, maybe it's just celebrities or people too, which kind of feels like trodden ground already or yeah. something. I don't know. Like, I, so the, the interesting, the, the thing about making a movie kind of about movies is that you, you have to kind of commit to it. I think of Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz, which is also a movie about a bromance. Mm -hmm. And specifically, it's about a bromance um, involving one person who loves buddy cop movies and soon finds himself living a buddy cop movie mm -hmm. with you know this, this very uptight straight man played by Simon Pegg. And that's really funny, but it's also a really good buddy cop action movie. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like because Edgar Wright in that movie commits so fully to being a sincere uh, appreciation of that genre while also just making a straight up um, recreation of it and a send up of it. Mm -hmm. I feel like those two ingredients kind of work together to build each other up so that you honestly do feel the affection for for the bromance that comes about on screen even as you know that it's also kind of a send-up of the bromances that have come before mm -hmm. and in that way it kind of comments on the genre and i don't know that any of the constituent parts of this movie really do that make that commentary yeah and maybe it's because there's just too many of them because like we like mentioned before there's the family thread where there's a sort of a strange teenage daughter there's the thread of this millionaire who's super into Nicolas Cage movies and like is a super fan who might also potentially be like a really bad dude who kidnaps people and then there's also like a thread with the CIA and then all of the genre like juggling that's going on so part of me wonders if this movie would be better if you just dropped three of those four threads or like two of those four threads or something and just honed in a little bit more. But I also don't know if this would be the same movie if that were the case too. It's so all over the place and it's so, I don't know, it's interested in in sort of going for broke at least on like a, a surface level, I think. And I think that if you tried to give it that focus, I don't know that it would actually be a Nicolas Cage movie, maybe? I mean... It, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, is adaptation, is that a Nicolas Cage movie or is that a Charlie Kaufman movie? And or is it a little bit of both? Because that's a movie that it does go for broke in its in its in its metafictional nature. But it's also it's just deeply sincere. Also, the way that Nicolas Cage kind of plays his due role, he's. He's not winking at the camera ever. It's it's a fully fleshed out portrayal of one person and his made up and his made up brother. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm spoiler you know, alert I, for a movie that's been out for forever. It's all good. right. Uh, it's, it's it's just I I kept waiting for this movie to kind of be sincere in a way. 
I don't know. There, there is sincerity in this movie, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, especially with the Pedro Pascal character. And maybe it's because the irony was mostly on, like, Nicolas Cage and the way that he's approaching the world. And Pedro Pascal kind of leavens that out. Like, maybe if that sincerity had been spread a little bit more evenly between the two characters, like, would that work? I I mean, it's 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 dangerous ground to, like, sort of hypothesize if a movie would be better if it were a completely different movie. Mm-hmm. But it does sort of feel like this, the, the viewpoint character is almost Pedro Pascal's character. He loves Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. He wants to be in a movie with Nicolas Cage. And the idea of Nicolas Cage is important to him as much, if not more than the man himself. Mm-hmm. And yet, because we're seeing everything through Nicolas Cage's eyes, it, it the, the fantasy feels like, well, what... What is Nicolas Cage's fantasy in in this? Like, is it, does he fantasize about playing a role? Or is is the fact that he's kind of in this cliche Hollywood movie, is that, how does that reconcile some need in him? Like, Mm -hmm. because as characterized in the text of the film, Nicolas Cage, the man just kind of, he wants to make his comeback. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's not clear to me if these, all, all this meta stuff really, satisfies that or if it's just kind of designed to turn it satisfy all the little pedro pascals out in the audience (laughs) in the movie theater yeah yeah maybe nicholas cage light or something i'm I'm trying to figure out like what even makes a nicholas cage movie a nicholas cage movie at this point and i don't think i have like my finger on it quite yet oh man we are going to get into that when we talk about face off for sure because i have thoughts but as far as this movie goes I don't even know if this movie really knows mm-hmm. what makes a Nicolas Cage movie. And maybe that's the, the fatal flaw is that it knows that Nicolas Cage has big acting moments. It knows that he's an action star. It knows that he's, you know, very talented. But does it know, like, what is what is the thing at the heart of Nicolas Cage? Like, what what is it about him that compels us? And what is it about him that compels him to keep working Mm. i feel like it asks those questions and then by the end of the movie those questions are still hanging in the air Mm -hmm. yep maybe it just needed more moonstruck references you know here's here's my uh possible uh 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 shameful confession i haven't seen moonstruck oh okay we'll add that one to the watch list at some point too. our our list of Nicolas cage gaps to fill in is ever growing uh so we'll we'll leave that for another episode perhaps but that is our review of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. It's currently in theaters. Um, it's available for all of you Cage super fans out there. I'd be interested to know if any of you listeners out there have seen it who don't consider yourself Nicolas Cage scholars, Nicolas Cage fans of any sort, what you make of this movie. It could be an interesting one to get that perspective as well. So uh, definitely write in and let us know your thoughts. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter. Love to hear your thoughts. We're going to take a break here in a little bit to read some listener feedback, but don't go anywhere because after that, we are going to be getting into the greatness, at least I think the greatness, of Face Off. Should be a good one. We'll be right back. Okay. You just run out there, you get the truck, you come back and get me, I will keep a lookout. Uh-huh. Love it. Love the plan. But maybe you should go, and I'll stay here. I love that plan. I do. But you are a faster runner than me. I saw how fast you were in National Treasure. No, that'd be the stunt department. Not according to the making of feature, right? Fine, I'll go. 
Wait! So you're gonna go? I'm going with you. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And I'm excited about this segment, Sarah, because you did ask uh, prior to us sitting down to record Mm -hmm. uh, a few days ago about what people's favorite Nicolas Cage roles were. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was really excited to see what people had to say about, about those roles because yeah, you know, Cage is just one of those actors that he's had a variety of roles. You can go for like serious actor Cage in Leaving Las Vegas adaptation. Mm-hmm. You can go for Bug Nuts Nicolas Cage <laughs> yeah. in any number of movies. You mm-hmm. can even go for like the kind of more subdued, sleepy, phoning it in Nicolas Cage of Left Behind. So oh, lots, lots to choose from here. So I'm sorry was, to say I've sat through that movie. It was not good. I... I can't. I'm not at liberty to share the circumstances under which I saw Left Behind Incredible. on the air. Uh, maybe after we record, I'll, I'll share that with you. But yes, uh, I've I've seen that movie as well, and it is not a very good movie. It's, if you're looking for a good Nicolas Cage performance, that one ain't it. <laughs> no, it, it certainly isn't. But we did get a lot of good Nicolas Cage performances. Uh, that were we were reminded of on Twitter from our listeners. We saw a lot of love for his roles in uh, Face Off, of course, uh, and National Treasure came in for some love as well. Panos, Co- this one was a surprise to me actually. Panos Cosmatos's 2018 head trip grindhouse flick Mandy came in for a lot of praise as well, mm-hmm. which surprised me. I, I didn't. That is a very strange movie. Uh, very outre, very grotesque in a lot of points. I, I just, I was surprised, number one, that a lot of people had seen it. I was surprised, number two, that a lot of people liked it. Because mm. um, it's it's not a movie that really, it takes pains to make itself accessible to, to the viewer. It's sort of like, you either are on board with it or you're not. It's funny, because I think the corner of film Twitter that I'm on, everybody and their mother went and saw it like opening weekend and loved it. So I've heard a lot of good things about Nicolas Cage's performance in it, but that is, alas, a movie that I have not seen. So I'm going to have to check it out because it seems like, depending on my mood, it might just be my cup of tea. I I I've, I hazard to guess that it probably would be. So needless to say, a lot of love out there from our listeners for big Nicolas Cage. But we also had uh, some people write in to talk about how they liked his quieter, more subdued mode as well. Christy Olsen, you know, brought some love for Pig, which... We love to hear it. We love to hear it. It's a great performance. Might be one of my favorite performances of his. Maybe my fa- I, it might be my favorite performance of Nicolas Cage too. What, what, if you had to answer that question, what would you say uh, your answer would be? Might be recency bias, but probably Pig. Um, I also really love Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck. Um, I think he he does a good job of balancing out some of the more like gonzo sensibilities that he has with a very sensitive side. So that one that one really works for me too. Have have you seen Raising Arizona by any chance? I have, and I do love it. So He's, yeah, I, when you said kind of the more sensitive side of him, I'm like, I'm maybe Raising Arizona is my favorite. There's so it's a good many, choice. There's yeah. so many great Nicolas Cage roles. Thanks, listeners, for uh, sharing your thoughts on Twitter. We also heard about last week's review of The Northman from listener James Wheeler, who tweeted at us to share his anticipation for this new film as well as his affection for Robert Eggers as a whole. He tweets, I loved Eggers' other offerings, especially in The Lighthouse, when Willem Dafoe cries out in despair, 
you're fond of me lobster, ain't ye? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my the best I can do for a Willem Dafoe impersonation. Better than anything I could do. So more power to you. <laughs> old old salt dogs uh, are not my my strong suit, but I liked the lighthouse quite a bit. So it was great to you know, get reminded of its greatness from from James. Thanks for writing in. Mm -hmm. We also heard from R.S. Naifa um, about a movie that we both liked quite a bit and we discussed previously on the podcast. So he wrote in to say, just saw a hero and did I just watch a neorealist Green Knight? Another excellent meditation on false images and true honor in which life worth living may come at the cost of everything. That's a somewhat reductive take on two rich movies, but still striking. And honestly, I like that take. I went on a whole journey with that tweet where <laughs> yeah. I start off going like, neorealist, Green Knight, what? what? No. And then by the end of the tweet, I was like, okay, yeah. I think he's got something. He definitely I, does. I'm 100% on board with that reading. And it honestly makes me want to do a double feature of the Green Knight and a hero to see if I can make those same connections that RS was was making himself. So that's very interesting. It would be a really interesting double feature about masculinity and adulthood and faith and, you know, striking out, I think. Like, there's there's a lot going on in there. I'm on board with it. The more I think about it, the more I really want to do that double feature. Wow. Okay, thanks, RS, for, for that. <laughs> yes. I might just do that. And that's kind of the, the reason I love the conversation is we often will get listeners just, you know, writing in with their own thoughts that reveal something about movies that, you know, I never thought of or, or you never thought of or just inspire us to kind of explore uh, this great art form in ways that we haven't tried to before. So thanks to everyone who shared their thoughts with us this week. Uh, we already mentioned that if you want to write in, you can email us or tweet at us. And if you're feeling a little bit frisky and want to share a little bit more than just your incredible thoughts on movies and cinema, you can do that as well. You can head on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and maybe pledge a few of your dollars to give us every month to help keep the lights on here keep jonathan paid up and uh you know help us to keep the conversation going when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply so we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has never seen, makes them watch it, and then we talk about it. So this week, our pick is one that's actually kind of doubly apropos. So it's a Nicolas Cage movie, which pairs nicely with our new release discussion of the unbearable weight of massive talent. It's also the 25th anniversary of this movie. So I've been seeing a little bit of love for Face Off. So for those of you who, like me, have not seen Face Off before just now, the plot is this. To foil a terrorist plot, FBI agent Sean Archer, played by John Travolta, undergoes facial transplant surgery to assume the identity of a criminal mastermind named Castor Troy, who is played by Nicolas Cage. 
Archer and Troy have been playing cat and mouse ever since Troy murdered Archer's son like six years before. But the stakes are raised when Troy wakes up from a coma from which his face has been lifted to find that Archer has stolen his face. So Troy puts on Archer's face in return and then the real games begin. So there's a lot going on here. You were very hype. I think last episode you even said that you were going to just come in guns blazing into the watch list segment. Um, why? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm just going to, to somersault through a window here and, okay, good, and, just, good. and just go to town. So I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks, mm-hmm. ever since we got it on the schedule. We, we had this uh, set uh, a few weeks out. Um, and one of the reasons that I was so excited was I genuinely wasn't sure whether you love Face Off or hate it. Yeah, I, I, I guess I feel like a lot of my recommendations for the watch list are pretty safe. You know, like if, you know, if, if you had really disliked the Lady Eve, I would have been... We would have had problems. I, I, I would have been suspicious of your taste, but I'll, I also have just been genuinely surprised just because it's such a... It's, it's it's a classic. It's just so good. It's hard to imagine somebody not having a good time with the Lady Eve, even if it doesn't necessarily blow their minds the way it blows mine. But with Face Off, it's you know it's one of those movies that I wholeheartedly like, and yet I can't really fault anyone for disliking it. The same things that I find that give it this kind of lightning in a bottle quality are the same things that another person might find tiresome or just plain ridiculous, mm-hmm. and. I, you know, like, like I said, I can't really fault them for that. It is kind of ridiculous. And yet, and, and that and yet is kind of what's going to fuel this conversation. I love Face Off. I think it's the rare movie in which traditional evaluations of good and bad aren't just inadequate. They're entirely irrelevant Mm. to the level on which John Woo, Nicolas Cage, and even John Travolta are working. So that's my pitch. Let's, uh, you, if you want to dive in through through a, a stained glass window with your arms akimbo, you know, oh, firing yeah. off clips, here we go. Moment of truth. What did you think of Face Off? Okay. Um, I really like this movie on paper. And I was really expecting to really like it in practice as well. Loved the opening. Loved a lot of the action set pieces. And at the same time, there was kind of this friction where I was just like, I don't know how I feel about this movie while I'm watching it. Like, I don't really know what to make of what is happening. I hated the plot. I really didn't like the plot. (laughs) And that is a ridiculous thing to say about like most John Woo movies, I think. But like this one in particular, because the plot feels very secondary and like it doesn't really matter what's going on like throughout the entire movie. What matters is like the confrontations between the different characters and the different ways that they end up confronting each other. I don't know. Like I wasn't expecting them to go to prison. (laughs) Let alone a super prison that's floating in the middle of the ocean and everyone has to wear magnet boots. Okay. The floating in the middle of the ocean part was great. Like that reveal chef's kiss loved that. Like John Woo was clearly like in his bag when he was directing that scene because he was having a lot of fun giving that reveal. Like, um, Archer, sorry, I, I, I keep wanting to refer to them as like the actors' names. It might even be and clearer might, to do it that way yeah. because 
of the face switching craziness. Yeah, like so Nicolas Cage like when he gets to the top of that prison and starts yelling no no no, at first you don't realize like why he's yelling no 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 and then it's revealed like through this big swirling helicopter shot. Oh no, he's in the middle of the ocean. Like this is bad for him. Um like that worked for me. The touches of like sort of pseudo sci-fi with the mag boots just kind of felt like they were transplanted from a different movie. Like it almost felt like Jean-Pierre Junet like jumped in and said, here's a detail that you can use. So this is me purely like working off like Junet in Alien Resurrection as well, which is a movie that I do genuinely love and is genuinely gonzo and also kind of transcends good and bad. So I don't know why like that touch didn't work for me here where it probably would have worked in a Junet movie. I mean, it's so... The, the the great thing and the difficult thing about movies is that a lot of times they, they work on an associative level. Like you sometimes you can't really articulate why a movie works so well for you, whereas a very similar movie doesn't work for you. I think for me, you know, I, I was I was thinking about it. I was walking home from work today and I was thinking about, okay, I really don't like Zack Snyder. And the reason I don't like Zack Snyder is I think his movies are uh for lack of a better word stupid i think they're they're pretentious by which i mean that he plays with a lot of iconic imagery without really investing the the images with any sort of meaning beyond the fact that oh like this character is doing a christ pose and that's kind of all there is to it and yet face off kind of does a lot of those same things there's of course, the ever-present doves during a shootout in a church. Rules. That rules so hard. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, there's, um, there's endless um, uh, images where you know we we see this this overwrought kind of recurring motif of how Sean Archer, you know runs his his hands down the face of the people who are important to him because it's their face and faces are so important. The movie's called Face Off, and all of those things are kind of, they're kind of dumb. And yet, <laughs> there's there's this, Wu is able to make me feel things about these very dumb devices that uh, a, a director like Zack Snyder is just utterly powerless to do. I don't feel anything when watching a Zack Snyder movie. When watching a John Wu movie, it may be as dumb as a bag of hammers, but darn if I am not really just... Fully on board emotionally when we get that, you know, that little coda where, you know, there's a happy ending, everybody comes home and, you know, it's a, the, the family unit is restored mm. and it's very silly. And I, I don't really know if I can fully defend it, but I think it entirely works. And I think that that's what makes Face Off so, so special is that it just has this utter conviction in itself and that conviction in how everything that's happening is the most important, most meaningful, most logical thing that has ever happened in the universe. <laughs> if if you have that kind of conviction, and I think John Woo does, and I think especially Nicolas Cage and John Travolta do, especially, especially Nicolas Cage, that kind of conviction can carry the entire movie all the way over to the finish line. Okay, get ready to defend this family unit because okay. I am sorry that that did not work for me. Okay. That reunion at the end didn't work. It kind of felt like, I don't know, 
this is my galaxy brain take of the week. Um, I feel like I have one of these like maybe every week at this point, but like this is my really galaxy brain one. It kind of felt like the coda at the end of the book of Job where Job <laughs> has lost his family and now he has regained it and he gets it back tenfold and everybody is whole again. But like in a way that felt like, oh, this this doesn't have the same depth as that particular piece of well, literature. Well, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, we are comparing a 90s action flick with the Bible, with a book of the Bible, and not just any book of the Bible, one of the most, you know, dense and difficult to interpret books there is. Oh, yeah. So that said, I, d- I think that Face Off, what struck me on this viewing of Face Off this time around is the way that Wu is so able to make the everything feel elemental and almost uh, when we're in kind of the thick of the face switching madness, everything is kind of nightmarish. That, oh, yeah. that, that reveal where uh, Nicholas Cage playing Sean Archer wearing Caster Troy's face mm-hmm. um, is in the super prison. He thinks he's going to get out. He's gotten the information of where the terrorist bomb is, is, is planted and he's going to be rescued by his, by his, uh, his super secret cop friends and the door opens and we see there John Travolta who is Caster Troy wearing Sean Archer's face. And in that just Cage's expression in that, in, in that is just utter horror and just think, no, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. I'm going to be stuck here wearing my arch enemy's face in a super prison floating in the middle of the ocean forever. That it, it, it's, it's ridiculous, but it's also kind of like a Kafka-esque, almost like dream nightmare situation. And the movie kind of works on that level throughout. So that by the time we get to this happily ever after ending, it feels kind of like the a, a dream almost. It, 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 there's, there's that mist suffusing the outdoors. Uh, uh, Sean Archer's wife opens the front door. She looks, she's like, where's my husband? He's not here. And then like an angel, he glides into frame and he's got their little boy with him. Except it's not really their little boy. It's somebody else's little boy. But it represents their little boy who is taken so cruelly from them in the opening minutes. Roll credits. That, there's an emotional truth there that even if it's deeply, deeply stupid and wrong, <laughs> yeah. there, there's you, you so desperately want the healing of the wound that was opened in that first scene to be made right somehow. And I think that Wu gives us a move in movie form. Wu allows us to experience through cinema that kind of reconciliation. So that's my that's that's my defense. It's a very impassioned. It's defense. very impassioned, and it might be a little bit ridiculous. I don't expect everyone to buy it, but if you know, you know. Like if you if you feel anything like that at the end, I think the reason that you feel that is because of something akin to what I just described. Interesting. Okay, let's put a pin in the Nicolas Cage performance because I do want to get back to that. Okay. Um, the restoration of the family unit. I, I think you said something about. Um, like the little boy who kind of re- represents their little boy who was taken from them. I think that's my other big issue with this movie is that a lot of the supporting cast just are representatives of something and not characters in and of themselves. So this little boy who is a replacement for the one that they lost right at the beginning. Okay, fine. He's kind of a shorthand for everything's going to be restored and all is right with the world now. But you kind of get that 
with Archer's wife and daughter as well. Like these two characters are the only women in the movie. And well, no, there's a couple of other women, but like very small speaking roles. The only women like essentially of substance in the movie and they don't even have any substance or like agency of their own. They basically just exist to be in danger to casters dastardly doing in a lot of really gross and skeevy ways. And I get that. He's a bad guy. Like depiction does not equal condoning by like any stretch of the imagination. But I think that there are two threads of misogyny in this movie. One of them is the overt misogyny of Caster, like the villain's char- like character. Like he's, he's just, awful. he's out here to <laughs> use everybody and he's gonna use them and that's just how he is. But there's also, I think, a little bit of misogyny in Archer's character as well in the I am the main character of the universe kind of way. And so all of the other people in my orbit, including my own wife and daughter, are kind of secondary to that pain and to that purpose in a way where if they're not on screen, they just don't even matter unless somebody else has brought them up and said, guess what? Your wife's in danger or guess what? I'm with your wife and also I look like you and I'm going to do terrible things like that (laughs) sucks, man. (laughs) It's I mean, I I don't disagree that. This is very much a, you know, a manly, manly, you know, like it's, it's a action movie. It's, it's basically a soap opera for bros. Yeah. Um, and it brings all the baggage with it that you might expect from something fitting that description. That said, I would, I would argue that, um, the, the wife played by Joan Allen. She's great. And um, the uh, caster's ex-girlfriend, who is the the mother of of their son, Adam, played by Gina Gershon, Mm -hmm. um, I I would argue that both of them do have have agency. And specifically, the way that the movie depicts Archer's monomaniacal uh, feud with Caster Troy and the way that it has led him to kind of think of them as just sort of props in his own life as the protagonist of reality i I think the movie's a little bit more self-aware of that than than um than you're maybe giving it credit for mainly because we get that one scene where archer is interrogating gina gershon's character Mm -hmm. and he basically he threatens like if you don't give me what i want i'm going to take away your son and he's a huge jerk in that scene and the movie obviously wants you to see him as that huge jerk Similarly, you know, just the way his marriage with Joan Allen's character is portrayed as on the rock specifically because he's just kind of selfish and has no interest in addressing his grief and loss except through the masculine antics of chasing down the terrorist and going bang, bang, bang a lot. Mm. I I think the movie's... I'm not prepared to say that the movie is critical of his character because I don't think it... It's not really. It really is. But I do think the movie is self-aware of the selfishness of his character in a way that makes me willing to extend it the benefit of the doubt uh, in the portrayal of, of these women characters. I suppose so. I still have a really hard time like seeing a teenage girl basically just existing to be like threatened by a bunch of dudes like her age or not. So like that's just something that like it really skeeved me out. There is an interesting scene where Caster as um, 
well, cast her as John Travolta, I suppose, um, basically like pulls like a, a boyfriend off of his like fake daughter, essentially, and then gives her a butterfly knife as a way of, of self-defense. And I, I did find that scene to be pretty interesting because he's he's essentially telling her a couple of things. He's telling her like, you're worthy and you don't need to be like, like you don't need to be reduced to your body or like the way that this boy is reducing you, but also the only way to to defend yourself is through violence. And like, I don't know, like that, that scene was an interesting piece of tension where I was just like, I don't really know how to feel about this. This feels like the wrong way to go about it. But also I don't want to like excessively moralize about a movie like this at the same time, you know? There, there's, so there, there's an, I, I've heard uh, arguments about how, um, a patriarchal uh, way of telling stories often takes violence as the engine of the story, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think through that lens, there is a very, there's a very, this is a very patriarchal movie, and that can't really conceive of any way to resolve anything <laughs> that doesn't involve somersaulting, knives, guns, or some combination of the three. <laughs> yeah, um, that's. I, I do think it's interesting though that. In, in that scene that you're talking about, Castor is basically being more of a father yes. to to this young woman than Sean Archer, our ostensible hero, has ever been. Mm-hmm. And that he not only that he can only conceive of defending her through just beating the stuffing out of her boyfriend and then telling her to basically kill him by severing his the, the artery in his femur. Like that's. That's exactly what you would expect a terrorist monster like Castor Troy to do. <laughs> yeah. And yet it's also like that's – if an actual well-adjusted human being were as engaged as he is in that moment, mm-hmm. that's kind of where Sean Archer's been falling down on the job. He's not been uh, providing sort of the the lawful good alternative to Castor Troy's chaotic evil, just stab your 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 – your your assailant yeah (laughs) and i i think that that's maybe what i'm getting at when i talk about how face-off is just it is kind of dumb and patriarchal and all the things that you would expect from a you know one of these big explosion heavy 90s action movies but it's also kind of woo does have notes that he plays in this movie that makes you think well he can't it, it's not all stupid. It he knows he. It's simultaneously aware of how stupid it is, while also fully embodying embodying that stupidity. Hmm. And does that absolve it? Maybe not. Does it make it a very interesting movie? Yes. 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 Does it make it a very enjoyable movie? In my opinion, heck yes. Yeah, depends on the depends on the scene that's happening. I think for me, so those emotional beats, like the butter, butterfly knife scene, like I found intellectually interesting but i wasn't like into them in in the same way the action sequences though absolutely rule like every single time somebody starts shooting something or something blows up i was invested again or like the moment somebody starts i don't know walking in slow motion up a beach past a bunch of seagulls like nicholas cage does towards that final shootout in the church dug that would eat that up with a shovel probably as well as nicholas cage's performance so I love Nicolas Cage in this movie, and that's not an ob- like that's an obvious thing to say. But I think watching it this time, I've what I appreciate is that I don't think this movie would work if Nicolas Cage weren't in it. And the reason is there's there's a scene where uh, he has to essentially explain the plot of the movie 
to his wife, who, keep in mind, she's looking at the face of her husband's mortal enemy, the murderer of her son, uh, somebody who, by all rights, should be dead. And he's trying to sit her down and not only tell her, like, I'm actually your husband, (laughs) but also to explain to her, like, what exactly is going on. And Nicolas Cage's performance, he is simultaneously, he, he literally says the words, this is this is effing insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's he's full out acknowledging in his performance that this is a ridiculous movie. Who wrote this? Who wrote these lines that I am saying? And yet he has some he finds the emotional truth in that where you're not just watching Nicolas Cage like wink at the audience say, "Yeah, this is kind of silly," but you're also watching a man who is just caught in this utterly ridiculous nightmare. And knows that what he's saying is insane. Knows that the wife that he loves won't believe him. Mm-hmm. And yet he has to say it because what else can he do? He's living this insane nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know how Nicolas Cage does it, but he managed like it it works. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny because it's true, but it's also deeply engaging because weirdly in that moment you identify with the super FBI agent who has switched his face with his mortal enemy and is now trapped in in a hell of his own making who has just escaped from a floating magnet prison you are in his in that moment you are in his shoes and that's kind of miraculous well now that you say it that way i'm completely on board <laughs> right um, i mean so and i th- i think the nicolas cage performance works because he is so over the top to begin with both as caster and then as archer impersonating caster and I think what really worked for me, or like the moment where I was like, okay, I'm, I might not be fully on board with this movie, but I am on board with this performance was when he first wakes up from the surgery and he gets a good look at his face and realizes like, oh, shoot, I've made a terrible mistake. I am my own worst enemy. Like, what do I do with myself now? And I think he gets like moments of where he forgets that he is like embodying his own worst enemy or, and then like impersonating him. And then he remembers and you can kind of like see the recognition on his face. And he realizes like, shoot, I'm in hell and I did this to myself and I have no way of getting out of this situation at all. So now I got to live with it or go mad. And I feel like he kind of does both where he lives with it and he goes mad at the same time. And that's where you get like the really good cagey, like over the top, reactions to things but i think because he grounds it in that very real horror of i have become literal like literally become everything i hate it works and it's also part of his character arc because then he realizes when i was myself when i was sean archer i was also in, in my pursuit of vengeance i was becoming something twisted and unrecognizable to the family around me and again that's kind of what i'm talking about how this emotional complexity shouldn't exist in a movie as simple and silly or as not simple as this movie but as silly as this movie and yet it does and then you get the more you think about the more you realize oh is that shootout in the church is that essentially these characters way of expiating the sins they've committed in in the skins of their worst enemy is this is there is there a deep spiritual truth in this movie about two men who switch faces and then engage in acrobatic gunfights in a variety of locales with sparks and explosions all the while, I submit to you that yes, it does. But I fully understand if you do not buy that at all. I don't fully buy it. I still don't fully buy it. But I will I will admit that that standoff was very cool. I, I love 
John Travolta's line reading where everybody's in this this Mexican standoff where I think half a dozen people are all pointing guns at each other. Mm -hmm. And while watching it, you're not even sure, okay, who's on whose side now? I've lost track. Mm -hmm. And John Travolta just goes, whee! What a predicament! (laughs) And I think that is the cherry on top of a very satisfying, very ridiculous 90s action movie. I'll give you that. I will grant you that. <laughs> and maybe like a little dove feather floating in the air above oh, it yes. as well. Oh, yes. The doves. We, you know, it's John Woo. You can't have a John Woo movie without doves accompanying the giant shootouts. We should we're, we should look into a dove budget for seeing and believing, potentially. Well, uh, yeah. Maybe 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 we can, uh, you know, bring some on. We'll just keep it in a little, uh, you know, little cage off here to the side and it can coo or something. It's it's hard to have fluttering slow motion doves in an audio only format. Yeah, I think that would make things a little tricky for Jonathan. So maybe not. <laughs> Alas. Well, listeners, that is our review of Face Off. I hope that it uh, lived up to, to the hype. I thought it lived up to the hype. I enjoyed myself thoroughly. Even if maybe you didn't enjoy yourself as thoroughly. <laughs> I enjoyed myself still, just not as thoroughly as oh, you do. Okay, yeah. well, that sometimes that's the best you can ask for. Uh, that is the end of our watch list segment. I'm looking forward to next week's watch list segment because mm-hmm. we're doing something special on that one. We're actually having a, a third person in our virtual recording booth. Uh, film critic and friend of the show, Elijah Davidson, is going to be coming on to the show to talk about his new writing project, an email series called Come and See that offers a weekly journey throughout the history of film to look at the 250 greatest films ever made. So that's that's great on its own, but Elijah has also agreed to take the reins in our watch list project, bringing a movie that neither of us has seen, uh, Francois Truffaut's Jewels and Jim. Looking so, forward to it. Yeah, it should be a good time. Uh, I feel like both of us you know, have a lot of Truffaut to catch up on, so... This um, might be my first Truffaut, actually. Oh, really? So, okay. Yeah. So I'm, French New Wave is like an area where I'm a little bit shaky. Like I'm familiar with Agnes Varda, which is probably like on the slightly more obscure end of that, at least up until the last few years. So it'll be good to catch up with some of the, the more established canon. Well, listeners, if you want to uh, watch along with us, we're going to be taking our maiden voyage through Jules and Jim next week. Should be a good time, especially paired with our review of Sam Raimi's hopefully triumphant return to Marvel movies, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. So I don't think there's going to be uh, any, you know, multiverses or madness in Jules and Jim, but I think it'll be a a fun episode regardless. I'll come up with a way to to connect them. That'll be my galaxy brain take for next week. I'm looking forward to it. Seeing and Believing listeners is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your face-off loving host, Kevin McLenathan. (laughs) My face-off ambivalent co-host is Sarah Welch-Larsen. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.
This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.